So I've been watching the four and a half hour edit of The Hobbit, all three films in four and a half hours. Uh huh. You know what? I, I I'm really enjoying it. It is a fun fantasy tale about a lot of crazy stuff that happens to Bilbo. Wait, uh, what is this edit? It's called the Tolkien edit. Uh huh. Um, it's all three films. Uh huh. Only stuff that was in the book. And where can I find it? Uh, I think you could just search for it. I want to re- watch it right now. Well, don't download it while we're recording, though. No, okay, okay. That's a good point. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program, faster than an airplane, more powerful than a locomotive, impervious to bullets. Hello and welcome to The Thought Bubble, a podcast about comics and comics-adjacent culture. I'm Joanna Robinson. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're here to answer your questions about all things comics. Dave here is our so-called expert, and I'm your friendly neighborhood novice. But this podcast is meant for comics lovers of all levels. If Dave wants to go in-depth or spoilery about a particular answer, he'll do so in our advanced section that comes at the end of each episode with ample warning. So don't worry. If you have a question for us, please shoot us an email at bubbleyourthoughts at gmail.com. You can find all of our old episodes at fightinginthewarroom.com slash comics. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. It's Wednesday, January 21st, and this is issue number 10. Sorry for the one-day delay, folks. Hopefully uh, we will have enough information in this podcast to make it worth it worth the wait we should maybe consider doing thursdays from here on out i'm sorry to bring this up out of the blue but like i got to read a whole bunch of comics today and research comic things and wednesday's a very comic-y day and we were taking advantage of that but maybe to be more informative we should look into occasional thursday podcasts like recording on wednesdays and publishing on thursdays or recording on thursdays Recording on Wednesdays and publishing. Oh, on okay. Thursdays. I'm down. Well, because then we get to catch up on like the the Agent Carter and the whatnot. Yeah. Oh, but if we record on Thursdays, then we can talk about Arrow. Oh, it's just it's too much all the time. Anyway, uh, if you guys have any strong opinions, let us know at bubbleyourthoughts at gmail dot com. But but Dave and I will discuss this a little more off air to find out just there when. Were four issues in Spider Verse today <laughs> that Marvel released. So it was oh man, such a good Wednesday. Good. Um, I want to kick off the podcast with a couple bits of news before we get into the great listener co- uh, questions that we have this week. And I'm going to dive right into the deep end <laughs> with this story I just read over on Entertainment Weekly. That actually, I think was originally a Washington Post story, but the title over on Entertainment Weekly is Milestone Media Returning with a New Wave of Diverse Superheroes. And this is sort of a resurrection of a an old uh, imprint. Is that right? Or yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and I just from the early the like ninety two ninety three. Right. And so I just want to read a poll quote. So they're they're bringing back this imprint. They're bringing back some uh, popular characters, including is it Static Shock or just Static? Static Shock. Um, did we? I, we might have talked about this when we talked about we did uh, African American people with electrical powers. Yeah. Uh, I think I might have wrongly attributed him to being a television only <laughs> character. He, he started with Milestone Media that printed uh, minority comic book characters in the uh, early 90s under DC um, as sort of a way to promote that during the huge comic book collector boom. Uh, they faded and Static Shock migrated to TV, which sort of kept that alive. Uh, but yeah, sorry about being wrong earlier. Occasionally I am. 
Okay, so uh, no, never. Well, occasionally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, I should have had you sort of talk about Milestone because I just discovered their existence today with this with this article. But um, ooh, they had zombie, zombie with an X, which was something yeah. I enjoyed at the time. That looks really cool. I was looking at that. Okay, uh, but so Dennis Cohen, who's one of the original founders, who's who's resurrecting it, um, sort of fired some shots. At a a common practice uh, around diversity, and he said, "We've never just done black characters just to do black characters. I've always come from a specific point of view, which is what made our books work. What we also didn't do, which is the trend now, is to have characters that are not blackface, but they're the black versions of the already established white characters, as if it gives legitimacy to these black characters some, in some kind of way that these characters are legitimate because now there's a black Captain America." So. We've talked a little bit about some of these characters, but, you know, we're talking about, like, Miles Morales as Spider-Man, Isaiah Bradley as Captain America, Jon Stewart as Green Lantern, Kamala Khan as Miss Marvel, et cetera, et cetera. And this idea, I think we talked about this a lot when the female Thor, when we discussed female Thor, which is this idea of using a known branded superhero to get readers hooked into a concept they might not otherwise be into. And and so I I get why um, Dennis Cohen is, is not charmed by that entirely. I I don't think it's, um, I think it's positively motivated that, that uh, idea, but I think I, I like Cohen's point of view, which is that, that, that is not giving your readers enough credit. Um, And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that, Dave. Um, I think we might have, I might have talked about this a little bit last episode where it's like where we can get diversity in like such a broad market we should not like look it in the mouth necessarily. Uh, I think that's what you see when you see the black version of um, white heroes. Um, Miles Morales, Isaiah Bradley, Jon Stewart, Kamala Khan have all turned out to be excellent characters as well and um, sort of redefined uh no that's not true they haven't redefined the overall brand but they're they've been included into it um and in the case of maybe secret wars in in, in a very direct way but we'll we'll get to that i'm sure down the line <laughs> uh, it, it's, i guess um in terms of like doing minority heroes it's always going to be the character at the base of it like i was a big fan of shadowhawk in the early 90s he was the superhero with aids he sort of looked like he had a wolverine silver wolverine costume on he had like those big horn ear things nice uh big fan of that a really boring character uh image character that sort of flitted in and out and really didn't have a lot going for him outside of he was the superhero with aids so that's like an example of tokenism, which is what blackface is uh, tied up in minstrel shows. So you have a whole bunch of racial stuff in here that I think he's just throwing up to get people to pay attention to Milestone Media because I do not agree with any of his comments. I see where they're coming from, but I don't think that's how they're playing because what we're seeing is Miles Morales becoming popular enough that his character is going to outsurvive his universe and Kamala Khan is nothing like Miss Marvel uh, in powers or behavior. Uh, she uses it as her secret identity, which is a superhero trope. So although it may look like these things from the outside, the hope is that uh, they lure people into the actual characters. And that's, uh, that's how you fight racism. 
<laughs> from the inside. From the inside. Yeah. But I am excited to see what Milestone Media does. Um, and if you haven't, you know, if you're unfamiliar with Static Shock as a character, or if you haven't read this Entertainment Weekly or Washington Post article yet, the Entertainment Weekly article has this very arresting header image, which is Static Shock with like a Malcolm X baseball cap on. <laughs> uh, it's just a great image uh, and got me really interested in what was going on. So there we go. Uh, the other bit of news we want to talk about is, uh, this is entrapment for Dave because he mentioned this right before the podcast started. Oh man, I have not done enough reading on this. You don't okay. have to do reading. This is, this is just a, a larger question, I think. But, um, so it was announced that a character called Red Hood is appearing on Gotham. And I just thought that there was a really, uh, interesting quote from, from the showrunner about this particular character. And you don't really need to know a lot about Red Hood in order to understand this quote, except for the fact that he has, a hood mask anyway he's got something very distinctive that he wears and he says the show owner says there's going to be an episode that involves the red hood which picks up that strand that costume strand and sort of gives a kind of philosophical base if that's not too pretentious a word why costumes what's the power of costumes what's the power of a mask all of that groundwork will be laid sort of culturally for that side of the DC universe before we start rolling into the more spectacular spandex, spandex type of deal. So, you know, the big thing about Gotham is it's teasing all these characters that we know before they put the spandex on. So it's, it, you know, Catwoman, the cat girl has her little like goggles, you know, like Anne Hathaway's goggles or whatever that, that kind of look like ears. But, you know, no one is really has really suited up yet on that show. So this is going to be breaking the ice uh, when it comes to that. And, and like, you don't need to know anything about Red Hood to answer this, but I'm just wondering, Dave, from your experience with Gotham, did you do you want to keep it in the in the grounded reality that it's in, or or do you want to? I mean, obviously, it is going to move in that direction, but are you are you excited to see it move towards the costumey direction? If they keep Red Hood in line with his comic portrayals. Red Hood appearing on Gotham is the tipping point, not only for costumes, but for things getting freaking crazy in terms of who's underneath that hood. If they go with anyone canonical, it's crazy. Okay. Uh, Do you want to save that for the spoiler section? or No, no, I think I'd talk about it. In Alan Moore's The Killing Joke, it's revealed that uh, the Red Hood is the Joker, uh-huh. uh, who's his initial identity. And uh, it would be weird to do that in Gotham, I think, because oh. I, th I heard they were going to introduce several potential Jokers. And it would be weird to not only introduce several potential Jokers, but also introduce this costume character, the Red Hood, who supposedly would become the Joker. Interesting. Uh, I think that's weird. And then later on, uh, the Red Hood mantle is taken up by Jason Todd, who used to be a Robin, but then gets mad at Batman. So once again, that guy can't exist on Gotham because Robin is just so far out in uh, Gotham's timelines, supposedly. I don't know what they're going to do. So either way, Red Hood showing up is a tipping point for Gotham maybe getting interesting. Like it's, it's the shark you want them to jump at this point if they're just going to do what they're doing. And I have to say, like with the weird cornball, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I will fully admit that I'm way behind on Gotham. So it's not really fair for me to assess the tone since I haven't been keeping up. I've got a canary watcher like you, like one you would send into a mine. Yeah. I'm like, you watched all the Gotham and you just tell me when I should rejoin and I've not gotten the heads up yet. The canary's still dead. Well, <laughs> yeah, like, 
you know, my, my friend Viv, who was a guest on the show, is still watching it. But, like, I don't trust her opinion because she just thinks that Cat Girl and, and Bat Boy are really cute together. So I, I, that's not reason enough for me to watch the show. I trust her in all other things except her opinion of Gotham. But, um, uh, yeah, so the point being, the tone was so weird because it felt like they, you know, it felt like stylistically they were going for this gritty, grounded reality. And then tone-wise, it was so cheesy. And so, I, you know, I just feel like, if they're going to go cheese, then they need the style to match it. So if that's where it's trending, unless, you know, they're, they, they are taking a way too serious look at, at what it means to wear a hood and, and that sort of thing. You know, I, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, but I just really love what Arrow did with the mask and when he got it and how he used it and his costume and all of that. And I mean, that's, that's built into the comic book, like the, the meaning behind his hood and all of that. But still, I, I just think the costuming on that show and the way that they transitioned into superheroic looks was really smart. So yeah, well, they took their time with it, yeah, which exactly. it sounds like Gotham could be doing. But like I said, the Red Hood is a weird character to bring up. It's the sort of thing that like announcing this is saying to like the Batman fans, like, come back to the show and you might see something you like again. Right. Yeah. Um, OK, so actually, I, I'm going to skip ahead then to the question that I think is more related to this, um, at least my side of the answer is. And so this this question comes from Shan, and he writes, do you think brand loyalty or team preference for a comic company translates to TV and movie adaptations? Meaning, it seems my Twitter feed is filled with a lot of pro-Marvel, anti-DC, or the reverse sentiment. And folks go out of their way to not see the flaws in their team and disparage the competition. Um, there are a lot of air quotes there. I don't know if you could hear them as I read it. As a kid, I read a lot of comics from everyone, Marvel, DC, EC, Charlton, Atlas, etc., though I gravitated more towards Marvel. As an adult, I enjoy good adaptations from any comic universe. And to me, the success of those is more dependent on the adapter, showrunners, producers, directors, screenwriters, actors, and so forth, than the company spawning the source material. So do you see a lot of this my team slash your team divide? And how do you think it affects the reception and online debate surrounding the final products? Dave, what do you think? Oh, I don't think it has anything to do with final product. I think Shant's correct in that it's mostly the people who work on it, the screenwriters, actors, so forth. Um, it's more like sports teams um, because like, there isn't like city-specific comics, even though if you're in New York, you probably read Marvel because it was actually New York and not Gotham and Metropolis. But that's you know a generation that isn't listening to this podcast, so I don't even know why I'm pandering <laughs> to them. Um, uh, so it's you know sort of the by byproduct of the human condition of wanting to choose sporting sides and wanting to form clans. Uh, that being said, the reality is these are the two biggest companies in this arena, and this arena is getting super profitable for everybody. So there's going to be a natural market business American interest. Well soon to be Chinese interest in how these things are uh, making <laughs> money uh, off of the general public. So I don't think that's a verse. I think they're going to be looking at each other and reacting to each other. Sort of, you could think about it as two people blindly exploring the market. I don't think the verse is really, since it's not affecting anything, I think it's basically harmless. And I like frothing the pot a lot because I'm one of those team people that doesn't have a sports team that he's allied with. 
So I have things like brands and fictional characters uh, to stand behind. So I'll totally get in like a Marvel DC scrap for fun, but knowing full well that wherever I am, I am not affecting anybody who is has the final decisions. Or if I am, I shouldn't be. Uh, I'm assuming also Joss Whedon's not listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, what I want to say about that is... I do admit a bias, uh, you know, I think I've been pretty clear about that on here, which is that I'm in, I'm in the tank for Marvel, the cinematic universe so far. And I am very skeptical about the DC movie universe. And that really only started with Man of Steel, which I thought was a nightmare. And so the fact that, you know, everything is that this is the kernel, you know, I had no problem with the Nolan, Nolan Batman series I, I had less of a problem than most people do i think um but but you know this new start of a universe like started off on a very bad foot for me and the fact that it's snyder going forward just makes me naturally prejudiced you know but it's not that i'm prejudiced against dc because like i like i just implied before my favorite comic book tv show right now is is arrow that's a dc show um you know that being said i, I agree i it's, I think my favorite thing that we talked about before in terms of the TV shows is how the different networks flavor the interpretation. Um, like, I, like we said, I'm, I'm really excited to see what CBS does with Supergirl. Um, Gotham, I'm not into, but whatever it is that the CW is doing works more for me. Uh, Flash, I'm still not as in love with as I am with Arrow, but. God, you are crazy. Flash is the superior show already. No. <laughs> Not even close. Um, its protagonist is still alive, Joanna. We oh, give me a break. You more than anyone else knows that Ollie's coming back, so don't even. <laughs> Whatever. They're still putting him on the ads because they know what I want. <laughs> um. All right. So anyway, um, I don't know. That was kind of a muddled answer, but it's just to say that like, I don't really believe in the teams, but I but I do admit that if you say a Marvel movie, I think. Ooh, you know, the Chris's, Hemsworth, Pratt, and Evans. Ooh, you know, Robert Downey Jr. Ooh, this whole, I like everything that they've done so far. Maybe not everything. Almost everything that they've done so far. You know, and then when you say DC, I get kind of gloomy and, and uh, pessimistic. So. Well, I mean, DC rules television. I will be on their side on the small screen infinitely from Batman the Animated Series yeah. to like the various incarnations of Batman. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of Batman, but even when they're doing like Justice League or Justice League Unlimited or like locking into anything that's sort of like that blocky Batman style, it's really good execution. And I think it trumps things like even X-Men, the animated series and their multi-part weirdness and Spider-Man and Fox, the animated one and its multi-part weirdness. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is just catching up to the things that made DC television great from the beginning, which is being able to pass characters back and forth. Like Kevin Conroy being Batman's voice means that the Batman from the animated series is the Batman from Batman Beyond. It makes complete sense in my mind. It makes sense plot-wise. They have their whole universe they could pass back and forth with. DC is really good with that. Marvel brought it to the movies. And that's the only way they found success in t TV is really by linking into those movies, either directly with things like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or Agent Carter, or indirectly with things like um, 
uh, Avengers, Earth Mightiest Heroes, or whatever the new incarnation on Disney cartoon is. Those are things that are just drawing you from the movie properties, where if you're talking about using television as a medium that's closer to comics, DC's been doing it for like over a decade, two decades. Yeah, two decades. that might speak a little bit to your prejudice towards animated uh, shows, though. Well, I'm not I mean, saying you're yeah. wrong. I'm just saying you like animation a lot, and a lot of the DC properties that you were talking about were animated series, right? Okay, we. I mean, we could go live action series. There is a what X Men live action series in the early '90s that was crap. There was a <laughs> you know, the Incredible Hulk in the '80s, which was, I guess was okay. There was Spider Man in the 1970s, which was horrible. Right, but so with budget. but with DC, you've got what Justice League. Before you know the age of Arrow, you've got Justice League, and what else is in DC's favor, live action wise? Uh, Batman sixty six. No, starts it all. <laughs> Pal, all right, I'll take that. Um, yeah. So yeah, we should debate Flash versus Arrow another time. I'm I'm curious. Or the or the Fleischer Superman cartoons. Man, you could go back all the way to serial days and DC even was doing it better, which is maybe that's why they just carried that through. But like, yeah, small screen wise, DC wins, uh, even as a Marvel person. So far, so far. Well, you know, I wish their comics won all the time. Boom. Boom. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, okay. So let's move on. We're going to move. Uh, this is a Marvel question. So this is Jeremy from New York. And he says, how do you think Hank Pym and Scott Lang will fit into the Marvel Cinematic Universe after or during the film aside? Oh, he's talking about Ant-Man, obviously. obviously, Sorry, there was some preamble I must have cut off. But after or during the film, aside from the obvious S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff, will Scott and Hank and possibly Hope play a part in Civil War or Infinity War? I've heard rumors of a Black Widow jailbreak involving Scott in Civil War. So I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on Dave's speculations on the small matter, pun intended. Thanks again for the Radical Podcast. Dave. Oh, I just get to go right out. You don't have any thoughts? I think your thoughts are as valid as my thoughts this far out from Civil War <laughs> and Infinity War. I mean, I think we know, I, I'm pretty sure that Evangeline Lilly, at least, but definitely, definitely Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly are going to be in an Avengers movie. Right? I think that's a safe, that's a safe assumption. Yeah. Michael Douglas might be one and done. Yeah, he I, might. I, uh, I wouldn't uh, be surprised. Like, I, I don't think you get a Michael Douglas. It's like you don't get a Robert Redford if he's not going to be one and done with Captain America 3. And I don't think you get a Michael Douglas unless he's going to be one and done with the first Ant-Man film. Right. He might even die at the end of the film, you know? Yeah, yes. But in terms of... That Hank character, Pym, I know you want Ant-Man. flashbacks to that character, right? Prequel stuff. Flashbacks, you could bring him forward in time. We don't know where the time Infinity Stone oh, is. There's Jesus. like... All right. Uh, look, uh, <laughs> I don't really care because Hank Pym's an asshole. He's not a comic book character I could get behind just because of the inconsistency in the way he was written. Uh, basically, his entire existence. So uh, if he's one and done, that's fine. All I'm saying is that like you get Robert Redford to you know be the villain in his old age, so you could you know bring people to your movie. But we'll see that character in Ant Man played by somebody who looks like a young Robert Redford. So yeah, you know, just pushing the character in there. Well, characters different. I'm sorry. The question was about character. My answer was about actors. Uh, so what I'm saying is I think we'll see Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly going forward. I don't think we'll see Michael Douglas going forward. As for Hank Pym, he could pop up anywhere. So. Yes. Okay. Fair, fair, fair enough. Okay. 
Uh, I've also heard the rumors that he's talking about about a Black Widow jailbreak. Uh, those rumors are that uh, they will arrest Black Widow very early on in Civil War. Tony Stark will, uh, both because they have history together. She was, after all, introduced in Iron Man 2. Uh, but also because Scarlett Johansson will, at that point, had a baby and maybe wants to spend some time with that baby instead of doing another Avengers movie again despite the fact that she's super popular and it's about to do Ghost in the Shell, so I don't know how much I buy into that theory. But, you know, it would be nice if the Russo brothers just sort of let her sit in a cell or maybe body double for a while. And then the rumor is that they will get Scott Lang to break her out. Um, I don't know exactly how much of uh, Civil War exists yet, so I'm hesitant to say who's going to pop up where. Uh, that's the sort of thing where you have somebody break out uh, you know, Black Widow if that's what needs to happen, and you wait to see how Ant-Man does before slotting in like a character. That's totally possible. So you're saying if Ant-Man bombs, they could all be one and done? I think what... From what I understand about Ant-Man, they have the basic structure of the Edgar Wright script, and then they put in the stuff that fits it into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, your flashbacks, your, uh, you know, sort of, the rumor is that Pym is sort of pushed into the private sector by the events of Age of Ultron, um, where otherwise he would be working for uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. or an Avengers, because at this point, at the end of Age of Ultron, the Avengers' trust is going to sort of be eroded. Um, but then I think they kept a lot of Edgar Wright's structure, so I still think it's a primarily a heist movie just with like new Adam McKay jokes. Uh, that's the right person who came into the rewrite, right? One of them is yeah. at least one of the people, yeah. Right. So uh, I I don't think there's it's going to be really heavy on Shield or universe building things, and I think that also Ant Man, you know, despite the success of Guardians of the Galaxy. And, you know, a weird Captain America movie that was really interwoven in the universe. Uh, Ant-Man's the next hurdle Marvel has to cross. The next bar that we set for them to prove that they're capable of making good movies. And even though it may seem like an afterthought because Avengers Age of Ultron is going to come out first and sort of blast us in the face with what they do best, it's, it's still not a sure thing. So I think you could pull all of those characters. No one needs to see a Wasp or an Ant-Man in the Avengers if the, the Avengers do bad. If like, Ant-Man doesn't do well. You mean. If Ant-Man does yeah. not do well. Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's smart. Um, and that is or, an inter- or it could be completely wrong. Well, no, but that's just an interesting way to pace things. It's like, okay, see this, see the Guardians of the Galaxy in as like their own external thing. And then if and when they connect with the rest of the universe, you know, they're already, we already know whether or not they play well they'll play well with others. Yeah, like, you know? if Ant-Man's super popular, then, yeah, Ant-Man could break Black Widow out of jail. But if not, like, how many people do we already know are going to be in Civil War that, like, we'd rather see Scarlett Johansson <laughs> out of jail? It's it's fine. Can Loki do it? Sure, Loki can do it. <laughs> he's Well, I think he's going to have other things on his plate. But, All like, right. uh, yeah, you know, Falcon's going to have a new costume we already know. Black Panther's going to be in there. Like, hey, Black Panther... We don't know whose side anybody's on. Civil War is chock full of everything, man. All right. I'm excited. 
Um, okay, but speaking of, you know, in terms of Ant-Man potentially not doing well, could happen. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a Marvel property that did not do so well, even though Marvel Studios didn't make it. Uh, this question comes from Chris from Ontario, and he said, um, this is in regards to Josh Trank, who is uh, the director of the Fantastic Four uh, reboot, and he had some unkind words Um he says, so Chris writes, I'm going to preface my query by saying I didn't see the 2005 or 2007 Fantastic Four movies, and I don't plan on seeing the reboot. The 2005-2007 movies look so dumb, and I've had no love for the characters as they have always seemed cheesy. So here are my questions. Why didn't the Fantastic film work? Will it ever work? Are the characters a product of a past that can't be brought into the present? Is the world of Fantastic Four too small for 20th Century Fox? Or has the world building been that him-handed? Could their mutant properties cross over? Would that make it a bloated mess? Does the baggage of the 1984 Roger Corman film still weigh heavy upon this franchise? Uh, so Dave, what is your what is your response here? Uh, 94 Corman film. Oh, okay. Uh, he, he wrote it correctly. That was just a misspoke. Oh, sorry, sorry. That, that, that's okay. I don't want Aviar getting mad at me. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know why Fantastic Four is so hard. I have a few guesses, which is that in, in the comics, even, uh, they work best right at the beginning. Uh, and then a lot of things that they did and introduced to comic books, uh, when Jack Kirby was drawing them and Stanley was uh, writing them, are now things that we see in lots of superheroes and we have seen for several years. You have the scientific acumen, uh, no secret identities, they're public figures, a tower in New York where they're their headquarters, you know, adventures into space and alternate dimensions. These are all happening in the Marvel Cinematic Universe without the Fantastic Four. So I'm not sure why Fox can't make it work. Uh, I think it's because if you want to hit that initial Kirby feeling, there's a certain amount of ham-handed camp that's going to come along with it because that's the time and the style and I think that's sort of a way that the characters speak uh, you know it's clobbering time is not something that a modern person says so if you're going to embrace that you might as well embrace the whole feeling of it uh, in terms of the world it is definitely big enough uh, you have the negative zone you have of course the scrolls uh, which are co-owned with Marvel I think but I know that Fox definitely has the super scroll singularly and they're shapeshifters and like all these things, Doctor Doom is supposed to have his own country. I don't know why they just keep insisting on making him like a hacker or evil businessman. Uh, and then it seems like if you also cross them over with X-Men and their like endless universe of everything that's ever been a mutant in the Marvel properties, that like the world would be huge. So I don't know why Fox can't make it work. Uh, I, it might be just that the same thing that's making Gotham so tough, which is that that balance between brightness and camp and a serious story uh, is just a really hard one to hit and fa Fantastic Four sort of requires it by the nature of its characters relationships unless you update them in which case they all become assholes as we see in the ultimate version of the Fantastic Four where Reed Richard has long become a villain just because he got too smart and power hungry and, uh, you know, the Civil War incarnation, uh, Civil War the Comics incarnation of Reed Richards, who basically was a Nazi scientist uh, cloning Thors. So uh, they're, they're complex characters. It's a, hard, it's a hard target to hit. I hope Josh Trank has gotten there, but I haven't heard 
great things from movie people, although Mark Miller and Matthew Vaughn, who yeah. are sort of comic book people, both say it's good. So, who knows what they're, yeah, like, but who knows who's pulling their strings is what, you know. Well, I imagine they're on the side of Josh Trank, but who knows? You're right. Anyway, the trailer's going to be attached to Kingsman the Secret Service on Valentine's Day weekend, so we'll. Which is a movie I'm really hoping is good. That's my idea of a Valentine's Day movie is Kingsman. <laughs> yeah, no, it looks really fun. Um, uh, so what I wanted to say about Fantastic Four is that I was, coincidentally, I was in a bar last night and Fantastic Four, is it Rise of the Silver Surfer? Is that the mm-hmm. subtitle? Was playing in the background on mute on the television. So occasionally I would look over and, and just like my mouth was hanging open. Just how... The Mr. Fantastic dance scene. Yes. <laughs> Mr. Fantastic dancing, Mr. Fantastic, like getting his luggage out of the overhead compartment in the airplane with his long arms. Like just, it's all so bad. And and I have a weakness when it comes to films where I, um, because I focus so much on character, I get excited or unexcited, usually based on actors rather than writers and directors and producers, which, which is a, like a weakness I think of mine. But, um, so I'm excited for the young actors that they've cast in 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 the Trank Fantastic Four. But then again, you have a Chris Evans, you have a Michael Chiklis, you have um, Horatio Hornblower, or whatever that guy's name is. I can't remember. It's Welsh. Anyway, you've got those, you know, Jessica Alba aside, you had a fairly solid cast for the first Fantastic Four and it was just a shit show. So, um, you know, it can't be make or break on performance on, on actors. So it's got to be the vision. And I did like what, uh, Josh Trank did with, uh, what was his great? Chronicle. Yeah. Chronicle. Chronicle. Okay. Yeah. Chronicle. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like that. I, I liked that a lot. And you know, the rumor has it that this is a lot like Chronicle. That's what I heard. Um, so yeah, we'll see it. So, so in that way, I can't imagine it being super cheesy. Because Chronicle wasn't at all remotely cheesy. Well, I mean, Josh Trank isn't... I mean, he's doing Fantastic Four in the sense that there's four of them and they have the recognizable power. But everything I've seen makes me think he's not doing what I would say is the recognizable Fantastic Four. So we might get a great superhero movie out of Fantastic Four, but if people who are looking for the Fantastic Four might be surprised... So it'll be like uh, it'll be like uh, flame guy, rock guy, lady you can't see, and stretchy dude. Like instead of the characters that we really know. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, there are the basic relationship structures are sort of there. You know, the brother, brother, sister, sister love yeah, interests, yeah. You know, what, whatnot. But uh, but aging aging them down and putting them in different parts of life when they get. Like the the fact that they're not crazy super scientists and they're not uh, the type of people who will be like, we have powers now. We're going to go to a tower in the middle of everywhere and fight crime. It's going to be a much more complex, I guess, familial relationship, which exists in Fantastic Four minus the complexity. Okay. I don't know. It's, it's, It's definitely a take that I'm interested in. But I also saw the previous Fantastic Four movies under the same mistaken guise. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. Commit. I definitely I saw the first one and I only saw the second one on mute last night in snippets. So that's my confession did about you, my... Did you notice Galactus? Uh, I didn't, but that was a trivia question. I told you I got a trivia question right because of you. The oh, answer was the Galactus was, cloud? The answer was Silver Surfer, yeah. Oh, nice. I know. Who's the herald of Galactus? 
I was like, you know, he left Galactus to come to Earth or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> okay. So this next email is quite long and warning. I'm going to read the whole thing. So if you tune in for this to this podcast just to hear Dave's beautiful voice, uh, now is a good time to go get a soda because um, you're going to have to hear me for a second stumbling through. All right, here also, we go. if my girlfriend ever dumps me, I think my voice is going to stay the same. So look me up later in life. <laughs> okay. That goes for both sexes. I'm open. <laughs> um, I didn't know that you were using this podcast to line up future, uh, you know, romantic. Liaisons. Why do we do anything? Okay, good point. All right. So this is Brian uh, from the OC. Is how I'm choosing to. That's not what he put. That's what I put. Okay. He says, I'm currently listening to your most recent episode of the Thought Bubble podcast. A discussion just came up about the real purpose of Ember Jokay's character, Daniel Sousa and Agent Carter. It was suggested that his character could possibly be a villain in part because he has mobility problems walking with a crutch. Unfortunately, this suggestion borders on or is influenced by a cinematic trope commonly used when talking about persons with disability, PWD, in media and popular culture. Particularly, this trope is when a character's physical body becomes a representation of their morality. This has been done countless times, but some of the more obvious examples are Star Wars, Darth Vader and Palpatine, or the majority of Bond villains. While I don't think this can be applied to any of the Marvel villains so far, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has another disability trope, the Super Crip in spades. The supercrip is a trope that is usually applied to individuals who have a physical disability that are granted or given powers to make them just as good or better than their non-disabled counterparts. The most egregious of this in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is Captain America. In the case of Cap in the first Avenger, we spend so much time valuing him for his will, determination, and attitude that we ignore that he had to become non-disabled in order to have that personality be valuable. Uh, take the Erskine line, the serum makes a good man great. However, what I loved about, I didn't do my really, really good Stanley Tucci uh, impression, but I could have done that right there. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> However, what I loved about First Avenger is that after he got the serum, Steve Rogers didn't automatically become the hero. He was a propaganda marketing tool. With Cap, I think the MCU skirted a line, but they still came out on top. Where they went grievously wrong was Iron Man. When I heard that Iron Man was going to be coming to the big screen back in 2006, as a person with a disability, I was excited. Here is an individual that maintains their disability while using a piece of assistive technology in order to be a superhero. The glory of this for the disability community was touched on briefly in the book Inventing Iron Man, The Possibility of a Human Machine by E. Paul Zare, published in 2011. I even shared that being a person with a disability was addressed in 2012's Marvel's The Avenger, when Tony Stark is trying to inspire Bruce Banner to see his disability, aka being the Hulk, as part of himself and use it as an asset. I was in Cloud 9 until Iron Man 3, where at the end of the film, in order to move on with his life and possibly cure his PTSD, Tony Stark cures himself of his disability. Not only does this action negate the brilliant speech Tony gives in Avengers, but it shows that any kind of healthy stability can only be achieved by non-disabled, uh, by being non-disabled. That having a physical disability, you are still defined by it, seen as weak, as less than, as other. At the end of the film, Tony proclaims, I am still Iron Man. I want to scream at the screen. No, you're not. Because he didn't have the armor, because he wasn't a, P a PWD anymore, now I've been, now. I've been ridiculed for my interpretation and distaste for Iron Man 3 and the treatment of persons with disabilities in general. That I'm reading into these things 
you know, reading too much into these things or being too sensitive. But like other marginalized groups, there's actual data and sociological research out there that supports this claim. I was wondering what were your thoughts? Perhaps you can devote an entire podcast to the treatment of persons with disabilities in comics, even beyond the MCU. Think Professor X and the X-Men and Daredevil, just to name a few. This is just wishful thinking. Thanks for reading this long email. So it's probably enough of my voice for time being, but I really do want to thank um, Brian for the thoughtful email and we will hear from Dave and then I have some thoughts too. Ooh, do you watch South Park, Joanna? I do watch South Park. I like South Park's way of treating pe- people with disabilities. Yeah. Because they're all, they're all just kids. Yeah. And like the realities <laughs> of their situation are the realities of their situation. That's a good point. And, you know, they use it, they use it to their advantage sometimes. Like when Timmy started like an Uber cab service and, you know, a band. And it, it's the joke isn't that they're disabled. They just do those things. They all have personality quirks. Um, I think that. Ultimately, that's what we're going for in our fiction. I mean, we don't want to portray people negatively. I don't think uh, women get fridged on purpose, for instance. I think it's a reflection of certain biases that people have by growing up American and white male comic writers. Um, And then those things sort of build on top of each other and become story tropes that are sort of passed down and shorthand. And so I definitely, you know, see like, you know, power super crip or power cripple or, uh, you know, Iron Man uh, being a metaphor for, you know, working with a disability and a prosthesis or some sort of technology. I think it exists as all those things. Um, I think uh, so does Darth Vader and uh, Emperor Palpatine. But those are also two people that um, are look the way they do and act the way they act because they're outside of the reflection of their souls. And I don't think anybody was thinking about portraying people with disabilities. And, but then again, that's your welcome to interpret your art in that way. Uh, definitely. I've seen this reading of Iron Man three or about Iron Man three being a movie about disabilities. Um, I've seen several uh, readings of it. I'm going to link to two of my favorite uh, readings, one by the website overthinkingit.com and another a response to the Overthinking It post by a person who's a PhD student uh, in, oh, I don't want to misstate what it is, but she draws a lot of lines in terms of how people uh, portray disabilities and sort of uh, different even uh, organizations that want to promote disability awareness and sort of if they treat them as just wanting people to be aware or if these are things that people can cure or if these are things that society just wants to forget. So I would say let's look at Iron Man 3 and like extremists is not a serum so much as a metaphor for how society wants to deal with disabled people, which is that we make it go away. Uh, with and veterans so we don't have to think specifically, about it. right? With veterans specifically. Yeah. I mean, this one, they, Iron Man 3 draws the parallel perfectly in the sense that if you're a veteran and like all the initial extremist test subjects are and you take extremists, you become the equivalent of a homeless drug addict. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're a successful businessman like Aldrin Killage or, or uh, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Pepper Potts, there we go. <laughs> um, you know, you sort of just get crazy superpowers that burn like crazy fire inside. But it's uh, Iron Man 3 is ultimately a, a movie about uh, when mental and physical problems can be treated uh, 
completely separately. So I don't think it's necessarily at the end of the movie saying that Iron Man's uh, better off uh, for you know not having this shrapnel. Uh, you know, he's no longer a person with a disability being super. It's more about Tony Stark getting to the place over the arc of three movies where he isn't using his, uh, I mean, using the suit as a crutch. And I guess I mean that very literally. He doesn't, ever since Iron Man 2 and uh, the end of Iron Man 2 and sort of the beginning of the extremist concept, we know that his, you know, the shrapnel's moving close to his heart. He has to power it better, and sometimes powering that kills him. It's not a disability in something that he's cursed with. It's something that he finds the means to fix. Once he realizes that he needs to spend some time fixing himself, he's able to turn the technology, the obsession with technology that he's only been able to use to make weapons, even if he's becoming a superhero, into something that he uses you know, to sort of cure himself physically after he cures himself mentally. Whereas the extremist soldiers and Aldrich Killian don't get that benefit. They um, are sort of shunted away. They're like, your physical problems are gone, therefore you're fine. But it hides this personal trauma. So that's the way that I've always read Iron Man 3 and what it's saying about disabilities. I think it comes down uh, on the same sort of middle of the line our reader was discussing with Captain America, where... You know, at least he got to be used as propaganda tools and there was some character development. I think that's entirely what we're seeing. Um, but I'm sorry that uh, this reading seemed negative to this person. I don't think it's an invalid reading. I just don't think it was an intentional reading. Well, no, I definitely don't think it was intentional, but it is, and it, it, you know, and I know there's always like a push and pull or like about what do we owe our audience when we make art do we owe our audience something or do we is it just on us as creators to do what we think serves the story um you know but that being said when there are role models on screen for people um it is you know i can definitely understand the frustration of a feeling like that's taken away from you like and i'm thinking more recently of, of the character of Drax in, in Guardians of the Galaxy and how, you know, the, the Asperger, like, autistic community has sort of lifted him, a, lift, like, it's an unintentional parallel, but have lifted him up as this example of, like, somebody that people admire who, uh, you know, processes the world quite literally the way that a lot of people on the spectrum do. And, you know, if Drax all of a sudden, uh, you know, were cured of this literalism and were, you know, were able to understand emotion better and all this sort of thing, that might be disappointing to the community that's adopted him, even if it wasn't intentional on the part of the filmmakers that he was representative of this, the community that's adopted him as sort of this positive on-screen example that they don't often get. Um, you know, that being said, when I first read Brian's great email, I sort of pushed back against it because I felt like, no, there's no way that my assumption that Enver Jokay's character is evil has anything to do with him being, like, having a crutch. It has to do with my... You know, and then I felt like I was being like, not all comic book wa movie watchers or whatever, but like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it has to do with knowing Enver Jokay's range and that his character was too bland and I needed something a little bit more three dimensional from him, um, which had nothing at all to do with, with his, uh, you know, his injury. Um but the more I thought about it, the more, uh, you know, we did say, we did make some comments about, okay, maybe he'll, he'll 
be involved in the serum or maybe the, you know, there'll be like that Kaiser Soze moment where he drops the crutch and it was all a disguise. And yeah, I don't know if there are some just built in ingrained story trope assumptions that I have. And if those story tropes are built on something, a more insidious assumption that I don't share, but if that's, you know, that doesn't necessarily matter if it's, it's, it's built in it, problem, you know, it's the line that exists in fiction between uh, trope and stereotype or archetype and stereotype. Like um, if I insult a person by calling them tiny Tim, like does that really insult them because I'm talking about, I could be referencing this literature character with like a true heart who lives through his disability or am I just yelling at a person with a crutch like that's so many disagreements in fiction I find are from miscategorization of a stereotype or misuse of a stereotype as a trope it's not even funny but those are things that are baked in and like I said not done intentionally at least most of the time yeah. I'm sure they're like I know I've been handed uh, you know crazy homeless people comics that talk about you know the, how we should kill all the Jewish people and stuff. So that, like it, sometimes it happens, but no, but nobody's nobody in mainstream <laughs> media is doing that. I'm not entirely okay. Um, you haven't gotten crazy homeless people comics? No. <laughs> oh man. No, I haven't. The Zener any... has gone, so we don't get as much of them anymore. <laughs> but that is uh, that is something I miss. Um, all right. So yeah. So thanks again to Brian for his email. It made me think, and I would be curious to hear any of your like listeners, if you are still listening to us, uh, your thoughts on this, uh, you know, your thoughts on Iron Man three or, um, that interpretation of Iron Man three or Iron Man in general or professor X or, or any of this. It's, I think it's an interesting topic. So thank you for that. All right. Uh, this, I think this is going to be our last question just because we're going a, a little long. So this is from Andre from Sweden. Mm. Uh, and he says, I recently started playing the fables game, the wolf among us and really liked it. So before playing anymore, I read the first volume and really liked it as well. I now play through the whole first season of the wolf among us and can strongly recommend it. If you haven't played it, I haven't heard you talk about fables yet and was wondering if you had any bubble thoughts about the series game. And if you think there's any chance there's going to be a TV slash movie adaptation in the future, I have read something about a TV show that it was canceled and later got changed into once upon a time or maybe grim. Sorry if my, okay. Anyway, he was apologizing for being Swedish basically, but his English is perfect in this email. So he has no nothing one to apologize. apologize for being Swedish. <laughs> um, so, uh, well, yeah. actually, as somebody from Norwegian descent, that actually kind of hurt me to say a little bit, but <laughs> you know, the, the, the spirit of it. Um, Dave has some great answers about sort of the, the TV show that never was. Um, and then I have some news about a possible movie. So Dave, do you want to go first? Everyone has the facts. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to quote a Slate piece called Did NBC and ABC rip off this comic book? Quote, fans have previously remarked upon the similarities. The creators of Once Upon a Time have dismissed them. It's worth noting, however, that both NBC in 2005 and ABC in 2008 separately optioned fables for development. And though the two networks eventually abandoned those deals, they each ended up with a series that shares significant similarities to Willingham's creation. The specifics of the failed negotiations were not public at this point. On a subject of overlapping ideas, Willingham has talked much more about Shrek. Uh, but whatever happened, the whole affair seems emblematic of one of Hollywood's most pervasive and current trends, properties winning out over ideas. So both Grimm and Once Upon a Time were actually once fables, but Grimm was like, hey, 
we don't have to do this with intellectual property we buy. We could just sort of make this up, which is going to be easier in a long-form storytelling thing because you don't have, like, pre-existing rules about werewolves. And Once Upon a Time was like, hey, we're ABC. We have access to all the Disney characters. Yeah. We have stand-ins for all these people. So, like, Kingdom Hearts is stepped on TV, which I, I'm fine with, I guess, except it's, you know, a Disney interpretation of these things, blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, as for Fables, I... I think I'm all caught up on Fables. I think they're around issue 150. I was left off at 140-something, 141, 142. Uh, but I, I, I never want to say I'm fully caught up on Fables because there's a ton of spin-off comic books with the Mouse Guard and Jack of Hearts, and uh, there's some novelizations that I haven't read. They even crossed over into the Unwritten, which I enjoyed, but is like so far down both the uh, comic book storylines <laughs> that like I would not recommend anybody start there. You're gonna have no idea what's gonna go on or what sort of stakes are happening. Um, but then I also played um, the game uh, by Telltale Games, and that by far is the best adapted form of fables that I, I think we could hope for, um, except for what Joanna might say, but. Uh, <laughs> It, it was definitely the world. It was recognizable. It definitely had all the characters and the relationships being recognizable. And it wasn't... Um, tell, it uh, did what Telltale is starting to develop a reputation for, which is intellectual property is treated correctly, which it sounds like NBC and ABC just thought it would be better to rip off the basic concept. And who could blame them, really? <laughs> so this, this is a uh, sort of my fault thing that I didn't quite establish what Fables is necessarily. But even I've read Fables, so I assume most of you listening to this have read fables or at least a bit of it uh but the you know the willingham in question is bill willingham who created fables and it's a story about all all the fairy fairy tale and folklore characters that you know who've been forced out of their homeland by the adversary who has conquered the realm and they travel to our world and formed a clandestine community in new york city known as fable town so you can see how closely it's connected with once upon a time and how frustrated fables fans were when once upon a time aired on abc and and it's so close and yet so far from the property that they were hoping to see. That being said, <laughs> there has long been a movie version in development that a lot of people thought uh, was dead in the water. But uh, just this week, the news came out that they've hired a kick-ass screenwriter, Jane Goldman. And that's not a descriptor like she wrote the, the movie, movie Kick-Ass. Kick <laughs> and... And this, uh, you know, I, I got this, I pulled this quote off of uh, an io9 article about it, but um, the producer, David Heyman, uh, and, and uh, a, re a listener, Ronan from Ireland, is actually the one who pointed this out to me on Twitter a couple days ago. So shout out to him. But um, the producer, David Heyman, had this to say about his concept of fables, which is, I'm drawn to stories about outsiders, and I think fables are outsiders. They're people torn from the place where they were raised by the adversary. They arrive in a New York City type place, and how we're approaching is that we're is that they're people who are all separate and how they ultimately have to form a community in order to survive. They're all inhabiting their own little universes within this world, but they have to form this community and that really appealed to me. And I just think that the characters are so vivid. And I also think the farm is, again, it's very human. That's what I like. It's a challenging film. I don't know. I just really liked that commentary on the story. Uh, it makes me optimistic for this film, should it ever happen. Uh, but, you know, this is... I know, fables is like the fabled adaptation that has been supposed to have happened forever. So who knows if it actually will, but they, you know, they actually hired someone this week. So that's something. So. Yeah. We got it. And it's, have you seen Paddington yet? I love Paddington. 
So this sounds like it could be another movie that's quietly about immigration. Oh my god, Paddington is the most charmingly quiet movie about immigration. Anyway, <laughs> Paddington and Jane the Virgin. That's making some commentary on, on immigration this week for me. So, um, yeah, that is an interesting take on it. And I am way behind on fables. Like, I get really overwhelmed with a series that have 150, well, this is, it's technically 148 issues. And as you say, a lot of spinoffs. Like, I, I read some of fables. I quite liked it. But it just seemed so daunting to read all of it. That being said, I did read all of the unwritten, so it can be done. But it's it's hard to start at a series that already is so far. Well, it's both hard and uh, like uh, the dream, right? Because the, what you're doing when you're reading week to week is being like, I want to read next issue now. That's true. And That's true. Uh, for at least for the first, I'm going to say, 70-some issues of Fables, I was very thankful to have them instantly available. That's a good point. Uh, the last thing quickly I want to say, um, well, actually I'm, I'm, I think we have time to squeeze this question because it's, it's really short. Uh, and this is Justin from Huntington beach and, uh, <laughs> we, we were, is it Jeff Loeb? Is that his first name? Yes. Okay. So we were knocking or Dave specifically, because apparently I don't even know the guy's name. Dave was knocking on Jeff Loeb uh, earlier. And so Justin asked, are there any stories of Loeb's that you do like? Long Halloween, Superman for all seasons, Superman slash Batman, Nova. Uh, so basically, come on, Dave. Come on. So what's your answer? All right. Here are things Jeff Loeb's worked on that I liked. Long Halloween, Batman, Hulk Gray, basically the only Marvel thing that I think he didn't screw up uh, minorly. Dark or majorly. Dark Victory, <laughs> also Batman. Hush, also Batman. Most of Superman for all seasons. The second season of Lost, the first seasons of Heroes, and the movie Commando. <laughs> I don't mind most of Jeff Loeb. But, like his friend Tim Craig, cannot be trusted. All right. So that, that is a convenient segue for me to just say really quickly that Zach, uh, Zachary Levy, or Le Levi, I'm not sure how you pronounce the last name, uh, a.k.a. Chuck from the NBC series Chuck has been cast as, I believe, the lead in the Heroes reboot. Uh, we were just asked about that the other day, and like we hadn't had any news for a really long time. And now we have this casting news, and I am – I love – Zach Levi. Uh, I loved Chuck more than the average bear did. Um, so I'm not, I'm not completely enamored of his new found celebrity as like, uh, I don't know, a taller Chris Hardwick. I don't know what it is that he's reinventing himself as at Comic-Con, but, um, you know, Nerd HQ, I think is the name of his thing that he does at Comic-Con. Anyway, I, I think he's a very charming performer and that's the first good news I've heard out of the Heroes reboot. So, <laughs> Do you have any uh, thoughts on this casting? I mean, if we want to talk about the Heroes reboot again, uh, Venture Brothers came back with a special this week and made me realize that what I want from a Heroes reboot is like kind of a hard satire take on Heroes now that we're in this other era where everybody knows what a superhero's like origin narration is. And if you put like Zach Levi in like a G-Wiz Spider-Man or Flash stand-in character... I will follow that character your entire miniseries. <laughs> All right. But it's Tim Craig, so it's probably not what's going to happen. Can't be trusted. Can't, Can't be, trusted. be trusted. Right. All right. Uh, anything Anything else you want to cover? We will, no. we will get to that. Okay, so there's a more deeply comic. I'm just going to tease this for next week. Okay. We're just out of time. But there is a question about um, 
Infinite Crisis and Secret War. And this is like right up Dave's like hardcore comic book alley. So we will talk about a more hardcore, hardcore comic book question next week, but we're just out of time this week. So, um, yeah, that's your tease. Anything else we want to say? That's it. Oh man, I should start making a t secret war at leading reading lists. I was, <laughs> I was trying to think about when this plotline started in Marvel Comics, and like I think it's Infinity, but it's really anything that has Jonathan Hickman's name on it. I gotta start looking for clues. But it, it it's one of those things where like uh, I don't know, it's gonna be a big fight that a lot of people are gonna enjoy. But if you want to get all the nuances of it, I think you gotta do a lot of reading. So yeah, we should cover that sooner rather than later. All right. So we will do that maybe next week to give Dave some time to prep. Yes. And it might be Wednesday. It might be Thursday. I don't know what to tell you guys. We'll see. Oh, man. They're going to have to subscribe to find out. Great. Great motivator. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, feedback, please email us at bubbleyourthoughts at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes over at fighting in the worm slash comics. Uh, and you really should. And at Batman v Superman, enter the night.com. <laughs> um yeah there was money well spent dave uh <laughs> the um you really should go over there every week i know i say this every week but dave puts all these elaborate notes in there all these informative links great art like he just does an amazing job like most uh podcast blog posts are fairly uh, cut and dry and dave just does a really good job with them so i really uh, recommend you go over to findingwarm.com slash comics or what was that again dave batman v superman enter the night dot com <laughs> Dave, where can the people find your work on the internet this week? You can find me on Twitter at DA7E and writing at latino-review.com and forbes.com. And I'm Joanna Robinson. You can find me most days on vanityfair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. And we will see you sometime next week. <laughs>